Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Kudzu Vine for June 13th, 2021. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Join me as always. Welcome, Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Oh, good to have you on. Um, We have some big news that you're going to share with us in just a moment. Um, But before then, I do want to set up our guests later in the show, about 20 minutes in, we're going to have Evan Scrimshaw. Um, he, he's been on once before when he worked at Lean Toss-Up. He's now struck out on his own and through the magic of the Substack newsletter um, app. He has really been able to generate his own content. Um, we'll let you give him the, give the whole ad- or let him give the whole address when he comes on. But I mean, if it exists in the world of politics. And, um, you know, what the shape of a race is worldwide, uh, Evan's got a handle on it. So we can't wait to talk to Evan again. Um, He was supposed to be on a few weeks ago, had a little um, accident, um, and uh, he's recovered from that. So we're glad, or enough to at least be on podcast. So we're glad to get him on. Um, But Tim, right off the bat, um, a lot of folks that listen to our show probably could, if they've listened enough, know who our most frequent guest is. Um, definitely one of our two most frequent guests um, that we've ever had on the show. She made a really big, exciting announcement this past week. It got covered all across Northwest Georgia. I kept sending it to you know where it was in different papers. Uh, to you early in the week, but I'm going to let you make the announcement because it involves you, and you can tell us to what extent at this point you can let everybody know. Oh, Tim, before I do that, welcome to the show, um, Catherine Smith. Greetings. I apologize for being late. (laughs) Better late than never. Uh, Tim, go ahead. Well, Well, I am... um pleased to announce that um, our friend, Commissioner Wendy Davis, uh, has announced that she will be running for the Democratic nomination for Congress in the 14th Congressional District in in Georgia here, and uh, all of you listeners around the country uh, who follow politics rather closely know that that is the home District of one Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Wendy will be seeking the Democratic nomination. Now, uh, I do have a part in this story, um, as you mentioned, David. Uh, Some time ago, Wendy began telling me that um, she might be interested in this race. And... We talked on and on, and I told her that um, if you decide to run, I'm going to drop whatever I'm doing, and uh, I'll join your campaign in any role that you choose to put me in, because I've worked in 
you know, campaigns and campaign offices at, at, at every level you can think of, I guess, over over the years. Um, and uh, a little over a month ago now, she called and said, you know, uh, here's the call you've been waiting for. I've decided I'm going to run. Uh, about three weeks ago, right after we went off the air, I got a call from the commissioner, and she said, I, 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 I do have a job for you in the campaign if you meant what you said. I said, well, yes, I, I meant what I said. And she said, well, um, she offered me the campaign chair's job, and I accepted. Um, and on the day that... Um, the FEC papers uh, were filed. I resigned as 14th District Congressional Chair uh, to Congresswoman uh, uh, Nikema Williams um, and uh, accepted the position as campaign chair for Commissioner Davis's campaign. And so now the campaign is starting to roll out. We have a website for those of you listening. Uh, WendyForUs.com is is up and going now. Um, if you live in the 14th district and you'd like to volunteer, there's a place on there for you to do that. And whether you live in the district or not, we'd love for you to support us with your donations or, or any other way that, that, that you can help. And so we're real excited about this, aren't we, David? Oh, certainly so. And um, I'll get into my longer thoughts. Catherine and I are going to a buy, sell, hold. Tim, we would be welcome to let you do one, but if you're in the campaign, we got to assume you've already bought in, so we kind of know your answer. Right. Um, but I just want to kind of tell a little story before we let Catherine and myself do buy, sell, hold. Um, Wendy's just involved in so many things in the, really the Northwest Georgia community, but in particular Floyd County and Rome. Um, and, and, you know, she's the chair of the housing uh, effort to make sure there's enough housing in, in, in Rome, like there's a lot of places. Uh, housing's gotten very limited. Um, re- revitalizing the downtown district, that's another thing she does. Um, alcohol board, because um, there's a lot of new restaurants, and it's not just, you know, like, you know, party time with Otis from Mayberry. It's, you know, really trying to expand restaurant opportunities and stuff in the city. Um, and, and there's something in, oh, and uh, the voting, uh, they had to actually – um, it wasn't her, but it was they. They removed the um, uh, elections chief in the county for just because uh, it made national news how Floyd County, Georgia, was one of the only places in uh, Georgia that had to change, and she was kind of had been looking into that effort to, to get somebody much better, and they have found somebody. Uh, but you know, with COVID and the vaccine, I'm just going to get into a personal story real quick. She's been really helping with sites. Uh, getting those vaccines out, and um, a few weeks ago, actually probably been more than that, more like two months ago, about the time they opened it up for people uh, under 18, um, my daughter had gotten some of her vaccines 
earlier in the day, so she was already having to miss soccer practice. So he said, well, let's go get the COVID vaccine. I went over to the location that I had read that was having, you know, free vaccines in Garden Lakes. Wendy was there, you know, met us. Oh, yeah, we didn't know that she was going to be there. She was just there helping out. And because when you get other vaccines, you can't have another vaccine, including the COVID vaccine, for a period of like 10 to 14 days. And so Wendy was immediately like, oh, well, the, this period ends, and this will have this one, this one, this one, and told us all the options. And so we then knew, like, the ne- not the very first day Mercedes could have a shot, but, like, the next day, because of Wendy just being so on top of things, and that's when Mercedes got her vaccine shot, or at least the first one um, is quick, because, you know, Wendy was just so on top of things. And she does that for every citizen, not just people that she knows. Um, so that's just kind of a personal story. Now, let's get into the political side of things, Catherine. Let's do a little buy-sell-hold on Wendy for Congress in Georgia's 14th District. Oh, I'm all in. Bye. And everyone out there, please take a moment to look at her website and learn more about Wendy. She's a fantastic candidate. She's a you know longtime public servant, uh, just really – uh, dedicated uh, Democrat, and uh, we would be so lucky to have her in Congress. She's uh, she's just fantastic. Yes. Um, well, I, I'll do this in two halves, and uh, one I, I'm going to get the, the the hard part out of the way. One is the district. The district is the district. Georgia, Northwest Georgia, is not a the most hospitable place. For Democrats, and, and you know, if we're going to have a podcast, we've got to be honest, um, you know, at times. And it's just um, the, the demographics are not the best, and then a lot of the people have gotten, you know, been fed a lot of misinformation, and I think some of the papers have, um, have less circulation, so a lot of the media comes from social media, which we know things like Facebook can be kind of dangerous. So it's the a lot of Marjorie Taylor Greene's, um, nonsensical, crazy behavior has not been exposed um, in some ways in the, her own district the way it should have been, and in some ways is exposed outside of the district, and that's a crime shame. Um, but that said, I don't think that this the 14th district, and I'm not sure how many times we've actually had this exact configuration, has really had a good Democratic candidate. Uh, I know two cycles ago, the last time Tom Graves ran, um, the gentleman that ran was not the best and brightest. Um, and then last time our candidate uh, seemed like his heart was in the right place, but then did not finish the race. He was, I guess, the antithesis of the um, verse in um, Timothy. He did not finish the race. Um, so that's a hard one to calculate from numbers. So now the district's going to have not only a good candidate, but Honestly, if you looked at all, what, 750,000 residents in this district and lined them all up, if you, as far as political and governmental know-how, what pool can get things done, if Wendy wasn't first in line, she'd be in the top 1% of the entire district. And I don't know that you can say that many times about many districts and many states and whatnot that we actually have the best person or one of the 1% best people 
actually seeking the office. I think that's pretty rare. So, I mean, cannot say more strongly bye on her candidacy. Um, I told you this, Tim. I told Wendy this, and I don't mind telling anybody this. I think Wendy's probably done more on the county commission for the people of this area in the last month than Marjorie Taylor Greene will do in her entire first and hopefully only term in Congress. Um, that speaks to both how effective Wendy is and how ineffective Marjorie Taylor Greene is. And so if you actually want good government, not necessarily liberal, conservative, moderate, um, extreme conservative, whatever, if you just want good government, something that's going to get things done, this choice could not be clear night and day in your two choices. Um, so that's our buy, sell, hold. Tim, I'll let you have the wrap-up comment on this um, before we go to the next topic. Yes, I, I, I just want to say I've known Commissioner Davis uh, for many years. Um, I've met her uncle a few times, a six-term congressman himself. Uh, Wendy is one of the finest public servants that I have ever met in my life. I do not say that lightly. Uh, I really believe that with all our heart. I do not believe, I agree with you totally, David, that the 14th Congressional District could not have a better candidate seeking this particular office at this particular time. And I'm just delighted to be a small part of, of this. Um, I, so, I so admire uh, Commissioner Davis. She has done so much for the city of Rome. She has worn so many hats uh, as a political activist, um, as a campaign worker over the years, all the way to the federal level. Uh, she has served uh, the party as a member of the Democratic National Committee. And she is who we need at this time in this race. I, I truly believe that. Yes, well, I am sure we'll discuss this race and her candidacy more. Additionally, we hope to have her own uh, again in the near future. Um, July is, is wide open <laughs> right now. We've actually um, we've booked a lot of June up, and we definitely want to give her all the time we need since she's given us so much time to talk DNC politics, a little Rome City politics at times, too. Um, well, let's move on to another topic before Evan comes with us. And that would be, it was kind of early in the week, but it's something that's been building. It's something we discussed, um, I really believe, after the Iowa caucuses in 2020. Um, that, you know, people were saying, oh, will this be the last year Iowa will be first? Will New Hampshire not be second? Um, will there be a change in the order? And it seems on the Democratic side there's some more talk of changing the order, although I don't think it's been, you know, issue number one, and, and I don't know that it should be. I mean, real people's lives get affected when you do stimulus bills and infrastructure bills and, and spread vaccines and, um, you know, work with voting rights uh, as opposed to the order, but, but I still think it's out there. 
I always thought, and I, I want to say I said something to y'all that, that Saturday. We had a show in the morning um, that I, I didn't know if the Republicans would go along. Well, earlier this week, um, you know, Nevada looked at becoming the first state, and Republicans there said, no, we don't want to be first. It should be Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, and so it looks like Republicans are going to keep the order exactly the same. Catherine, do you think the parties will actually agree on something for good or bad and they'll both stay the same, or will Democrats have a different calendar than Republicans as early as 2024? You know, I had I know we have talked about this before, and I've thought about it a lot, but that, this sort of took me by surprise, so I haven't had a chance to fully uh, consider these options, but I'm hesitant to have different calendars just because I think it gets awfully confusing for voters um, to have, you know, to have the schedule off between the parties. So I'm going to, I'm going to say we should stick with, we should try to do, be the same. Each party should be on the same calendar. Um, I just, I'm, though I am frustrated by the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire are first and get so much attention when they really don't uh, represent our um, population and demographics very well. So it's a, it's, it's a tough situation, but I I really lean towards sticking with the same calendars for both parties. Yeah, Tim, um, a little nuance on that question. You know, Catherine said, and she's right, Iowa and New Hampshire don't really reflect the nation, but Iowa in particular, doesn't it reflect the Republican Party pretty well? Well, it used not to. Now it seems to. Um, They have strongly voted Republican the last couple of elections, and they certainly uh, seem to be trending that way Although the Democrats did very well In the midterms there in 2018 And lost a lot of that ground uh, In the recent presidential election A thing I find funny about all of this David uh, I can understand The Republican chairs of Iowa New Hampshire South Carolina Being opposed to this They want to protect their position. But Nevada's Republican chair, with the chance for Nevada to be first, you would think that everyone in Nevada would be for that because, hey, it would help Nevada. How could it not help Nevada? But you know what? We are so partisan in this country now. See, the Nevada legislature is majority Democratic. I bet. If it was majority Republican, the Republican chair of Nevada would have been all for it. What do you think? Yeah, I wonder. It does seem like it's either, you know, this is the way we've always done it, and the Republicans seem to be, you know, they worship tradition. And and not all tradition's bad, but it's always, you know, the way we used to do it or the way we do it now, change is bad. There's some of that, and then I will say that you know um, I think the Democrats, the Democratic Party, 
you know, they value diversity. And I think that's a good thing, but I think a critic might say we value diversity too much, um, that it's too emphasized. And then the Republicans get into this trap where they have to be the opposite of the Democrats no matter what. And so they're yeah. going to be so hesitant to value uh, diversity, to be different, that they're going to paint themselves into a corner where they're wider than they are now, and I, there's not a lot of ways to get much wider than the current Republican Party. So, and then, of course, the country's going a different way. It's really a box that the Republicans have put themselves in. Um, I am sure yeah. we will discuss this more in the future, but now I am so excited to bring on to the kudzu vine for the second time uh, Mr. Evan Scrimshaw. Welcome back, Evan. Welcome, and also it's the third time I've been on the show. Now. Is it the third? Man, I, 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 I came on in April. I came, yeah, oh, and I'm, right I'm glad to be on as often as you want. Yeah, yeah um, well, April, once in October, and then yes. this, this is now my third appearance, yes. Well, and I'm going to tell you and all our listeners how highly that um, April appearance uh, rated for me. Tim and Catherine know that period between like Labor Day and uh, Election Day, we just basically wanted to have an all-star lineup. We were like, who are our best people? We got to get them on right there before the election. And so that one appearance puts you up uh, with the Wendy Davises and the Tom Jensen's of the world. We said, we got to have this guy back on right before the election. So that's the highest praise we can give you. <laughs> and I appreciate every moment of it. Yes, well, um, but glad to have you on today. And um, and and I want to say I remember on election day because I follow you on Twitter. Um, you were quite distraught about how poorly the polling went because you're a forecaster and you have you can only depend on what you were given. And and like the rest of us, you were given bad numbers. And I remember responding back saying, you know, Evan, if you were given bad groceries. Nobody can complain about the taste of the meal, you know, and, and tried to, you know, say, look, you did a great job of what you were given. Um, looking back, um, what do you think went wrong with the polling, and what can we do to, to make it better for the future? Um, I think we all need to be less credulous of the polling um, because there were some, – some of the errors I made, I, I don't think there was anything I could have done differently. Um, like the polls in Florida all pointed to a democratic victory. Um, you know, the, the, the polls in the upper Midwest all pointed to sort of big Biden leads, none of which came through on election day. You know, we were waiting days for Pennsylvania. We were waiting days for Wisconsin. And the, the thing that we need to do is I think we need to stop. I think there's a tendency for people to believe data that supports the view they already hold. And dismiss stuff that's maybe not quite in line with it. And I think the bigger problem for the pollsters themselves is they can't poll white people anymore. Like they can't they can't poll minorities either, but they've never been able to poll minorities. But they can't figure out the group of you know like they 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 get their they you know they light up their thousand people or whatever they they hit their quotas. But the problem is you know Biden was supposed to win white people to college degree by 20 to 30 points, depending on the poll. He won them by seven. Like, 
you 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 hit your quotas right. You needed to get thirty percent of them of your sample to be white people with degrees. And the problem was they got that number, but that number was completely unreflective of the of the voters they were trying to sample. And if the pollsters don't know how to get a sample that's reflective, then there's no value in polling anymore. Yes. I mean, I know that Maine was a real issue. I mean, Maine is an issue where it's not very transient. It's very homogenous. And if you can't uh, poll it any better than, what, eight-point polling error, you know, it's a real problem. And I hope they fix it. I like the science of polling. Uh, But we've got to figure out ways to read it to make it of some value to us. Yeah, Susan Collins was the was I think the one of the biggest shocks of the cycle because no pollster had her ahead the entire year. Nobody had her winning, and then she just just wins fairly comfortably. Like, there's nothing you can do in a situation like that because there's literally there's literally no poll that says Susan Collins is going to win. Yes. What am well, I supposed I wanted- to do? Yeah, I, it was an absolute shock. Um, well, I want to ask you about looking forward now to 2022. Um, you wrote a piece uh, last month on a, the state of Ohio. Uh, it, it is where Rob Portman is um, retiring. His replacement is li- far likely to be more conservative, more Trumpian um, than Portman certainly was. And the Democrats have already um, – you know, uh, recruited really a, a probably about as good a candidate as they possibly could in Congressman Tim Ryan. Um, I, I personally am a big Tim Ryan fan, and I know that there's a very likely that his district will not be winnable, so why not roll the dice and go for, um, you know, a statewide race? Ohio used to be, like in 2004, the, the swingiest of swing states. It seemingly, certainly since uh, you know President Obama's first victory, seems to be moving away from us. You wrote an article about should Democrats target that race. Tell us your conclusions at this point in time. So I'll admit that I change my mind on this question quite frequently. Um, anyone who read that piece um, up at my Substack, uh, Scrimshaw Unscripted, um, will will be able to, to tell the sort of the fact that I'm not fully sold either way. Uh, Right now, I lean towards competing in the race, if only because Democrats are in trouble in 2024 in the Senate. Joe Manchin's almost assuredly going to lose again if he even runs again uh, in West Virginia. John Tester in Montana is in trouble. Uh, Sherrod Brown, who holds the other Ohio seat, is up in a presidential year this time. He's he's in some trouble. Um, And the thing is, Democrats only have limited um, shots to, to, to keep the Senate. And Tim Ryan's a very good candidate. Um, he generally uh, overruns uh, Obama and uh, Hillary Clinton and, and then Joe Biden in his Youngstown, uh, I think a bit of Akron, Youngstown base seat up in Northeast Ohio. Um, and the, 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 the argument for competing in the race is um, anyone who's driven through Ohio, um, the, the I-71 is the, the highway that runs from Cleveland Columbus down to Cincinnati. Um, I've driven that once before in my life, and everything south of the I-71 is just getting increasingly red and red and red. It is um, social conservatives, cultural conservatives, who you know who might have been ex-union, uh, who might have worked in uh, resource extraction, um, 
and that those are culturally conservative areas are trending are trending right. Tim Ryan has the chance, and I'm not saying he's going to, but he has the chance to do a lot better than Joe Biden in all those small counties up and down the southeast, the, the south and east of the state, basically everything south of the I-71. And if he does that, and then he can get better results in the three cities than Joe Biden, there's a narrow path to victory for him. And I think it's a path that exists that is plausible enough to make it so that Democrats should fight there, especially given there's not a, like, like they, they've only got three other targets to, to be fighting in. Uh, that they need to, that they could maybe go get. And if they could get that fourth seat, they can get Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina, which are, are three better targets. They can get Ohio, then they go into 2024 as Senate favorites. And so I, I think the, the what they could get if they win it makes it worth fighting. Yes, and I guess another thing that helps is there's not a lot of defense that has to be played. Um, we sit in one of the states that you probably have to play defense, but Raphael Warnock is just a likable guy. That's just the conclusion I can come up with is why he keeps doing better every time he gets on the ballot. Um, well, I yeah, when, ask, when, when Raphael Warnock and Mark Kelly are the two are two of the four seats you have to defend, you're not defending particularly hard terrain. Yes. Um, well, let, let's. you mentioned going out west with Mark Kelly. I'm going to stop a little short of that. Um, the New Mexico – First district is probably the best special election result, or I should say the most predictive of the ones we've had, um, just because it wasn't like a, a 70-30 seat. I mean, it was Democratic, but not, you know, just no way in the world it ever changes. So uh, Democrats did better than expected. Tell us why that happened and what that means for other races across the country. So Democrats – uh, the, the seat is open because the uh, previous member is now the Secretary of the Interior. Um, Democrats, it's, a, it's an Albuquerque, um, it's an Albuquerque-based seat. And the, the sort of, the reason Democrats didn't do as well in 2020 as they did in 2018 is that there was a group of voters who voted in 2018 who did not, or sorry, voted in 2020 who did not vote in 2018. Uh, they tended to not have university degrees. They tended to uh, be hold culturally conservative views, and they tended to vote for Donald Trump. Those voters did not vote in the Georgia runoffs in, in January, or did, did not vote in the same numbers as, as last time. That's why John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock are, are in the Senate, thanks to, thanks to the voters of Georgia for that one. Um, and it's the same thing in, in New Mexico 1. Democrats did not slip in, with, uh, in their showing with educated, socially liberal, wealthy white people and Republicans didn't get their turnout out as much as Democrats did. And the thing is, if you are a, if you are a, a 2022 optimist for Democrats, mm. that's the, that's the way Democrats win the house again. That's the way they win Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, North Carolina. It's low propensity Trump supporting voters who voted in 2018 or who didn't vote in 2018, who voted in 2020 and who didn't vote in the runoffs didn't vote in New Mexico. Uh, they don't vote because it's a midterm. Trump isn't on the ballot. And Democrats hold or maybe even extend their gains with well-off white social liberals in places like Albuquerque, um, Cobb and Gwinnett, even Forsyth, which 
I obviously Democrats did not win Forsyth in, in January, but Abrams lost it by the mid forties. Uh, Joe Biden lost it by thirty three, and, and that gain for Democrats is, is, is goes a long way to explaining why Stacey Abrams fell just short in twenty eighteen, and Democrats won in twenty twenty. Hmm. Yes. Well, um, I'm going to ask you one more question, and um, just to let our listeners know, uh, you actually live in Canada, so in addition to American politics, you cover Canadian politics, you cover British politics. I saw on the site you even did a breakdown of Tasmanian politics, Um, and so what I've noticed, you know about politics all around the world. If a listener decided, man, I want to study the most interesting election – coming up in the next few months or the rest of 2021 internationally, what is the most interesting country politically um, for the remainder of the year? I'm going to cheat. I'm going to say it's either Canada or Australia. Neither Canada or Australia have elections scheduled for the back half of this year, but in Canada, it's almost a certainty there's going to be an election in the fall. Um, in Australia, there's a heavy suspicion there's going to be an election in the fall. And the reason I'm going to say one or both of them, depending on if one or both go to an election in the back half of this year, uh, both will certainly go to an election before the next time the Americans go to their to the midterms. Um, the reason I'm going to say they're interesting is because, A, they are quirky enough that you can get into local races and there are, you know, fun local candidate quirks and, and weird sort of tricks and traits of every place that are fun and interesting to get into. And, you know, if you go to Australian politics, the personalities are quite fun to follow. Um, but the thing is, they're also both very instructive in terms of trying to understand American politics because the same trend I was just talking about, right? Uh, the GOP doing better with cultural conservatives in rural and regional areas and and, uh, Democrats doing a lot better in uh, suburban and urban areas with rich, uh, well-off, you know, um, social liberals. That's the same thing's happening in Canada. Same thing's happening in Australia. And you can, you can draw a straight line from some of the more shocking election results of the 2018 and 2020. You could draw a straight line from things that happened in Canada and things happened in Australia last time. And if you want to see a continuation of that exact same trend line, and see what things might look like for 2022 or 2024. I'd say either the Australian or Canadian elections, um, both of which I expect this year, but uh, neither of which are technically guaranteed. Yes, well, you did go on a limb there. And one thing I'll say, if anybody says Canadian politicians aren't interesting, you can always counter with Rob Ford. So... You, uh, you for, uh, you're, you're getting your Fords confused. Uh, Rob oh. is the, ex, is the uh, ex-cocaine mayor, and Doug Ford is the current premier of Ontario, and oh, just don't get me started. Yeah, Rob on Ford, Ford, I've never one historically. Yeah, I love the cocaine uh, mayor. He's the, he's the yeah. Well, yeah. Well, his brother. Yeah. Well, his yeah. Well, his brother is now the premier of our biggest province. So. <laughs> oh, <my God>. Yeah. <laughs> Well, um, all right. So um, let me pass this over to Tim, and we'll pass it to Catherine. Tim. Uh, good evening, sir, and thank you for being on with us tonight. Um, I want to turn my attention to the New York City mayoral race because we are right on the cusp of the biggest election in this country so far this year. And 
first I want to ask you about Andrew Yang. He he seemed to be headed to victory, the front runner all year and by a significant margin. But now in the polls, he seems to be dropping. Um, so if he should go on to lose, what happened to Andrew Yang? Andrew Yang went from being a fun, you know, a feature of the debate stage for, for democratic uh-huh. politics. And that made him, that made people think he was a serious candidate for, for high office. And if you're charitable, you're going to say that this is a campaign that made a lot of mistakes because it didn't know what it was doing because of inexperience. And if you're going to be less charitable to the Yang campaign, Yang does not, has not really run a campaign that was um, very good at all. Um, he has not run a serious campaign. And, what happened was it was Andrew Yang, Scott Stringer, who's the city comptroller, and then some local politicians, um, Brooklyn Borough President, uh, Derek Adams, uh, a former head of the sanitation department, uh, Catherine Garcia, my Wiley, whose um, title I'm actually blank on right now. Um, but like it wasn't – there wasn't a congressman running. There wasn't you know a, a state rep running. So it was a sort of low-key race other than him and Scott Stringer. Uh, Stringer uh, collapsed over allegations uh, of a Me Too nature. Um, the left has sort of not coalesced around a candidate properly. They have, uh, and Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez has now endorsed Maya Wiley, so she's sort of surging in the polls. But Yang was the default candidate of, oh, I know his name. I've heard of this guy before. And then mm-hmm. Yang has now had to face sustained pressure on his actual ideas, which – have not always held up the best in mm-hmm. the light of scrutiny. Yeah. Now, now you mentioned um, Maya Wiley. Um, latest polls had her at nine percent and and starting to climb. Uh, you mentioned Eric Adams and Catherine Garcia. Now Garcia was, I believe, um, endorsed by both the New York Times and the New York Daily News. Uh, well thought of candidate. And she has really surged. And Adams and Garcia in particular are self-described political moderates. And we're talking about New York City, one of the most progressive areas in the country. If the left does not do well uh, in this election, is it because of what you said that they just never could quite coalesce around the candidate early enough? Yeah, I don't think this necessarily means anything for the like. I don't. I don't. I don't think if they if uh, if Eric Adams wins, which which I'm just going to be honest, I think that's the most likely outcome right now. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that will be a failure. I don't think that will be some like oh the left is dead in America or even in New York City story. I think it's just people were kind of in on Scott Stringer. Uh, and then he got hit with um, misconduct allegations, which caused most everyone to bail on his campaign in terms of his um, visible endorsements. And out of like, like, no one really wanted to pick between like Diane Morales and Maya Wiley, and you know, do we resuscitate Scott Turner's campaign? And they they waited, I think, too long. Um, and the thing is, Adams is a good candidate because he is. You know, he isn't, he's anti defund the police. He's uh, the self described moderate and he's uh, African American, which 
in a city that is, you know, fairly, you know, majority non-white, um, Adams can put together a coalition of, you know, uh, Manhattanites and sort of, you know, your upper west siders who just want a moderate to stop the stupidest ideas of the Democratic um, city council there and can also get um, good numbers out of um, Harlem, the Bronx, and the, the more uh, have more heavily African-American areas. And obviously he would do well in Brooklyn, given he is the borough president. All right. And with that, I would like to jump way over to the middle of the country. Um, and this is something that you have written about, uh, and we've talked about it a lot on this show, but Democratic support has plummeted, especially among Hispanics down in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas. What exactly has caused this? Religious, culturally conservative Hispanics are now Mm -hmm. voting more like religious, cultural conservatives than they are Hispanics. Um, Mm -hmm. And I got that totally wrong going into 2020. I I did not believe the polls which said this was going to happen, and I I just totally got that one wrong. But um, in Australia, four years ago now, there was a a referendum postal ballot on same-sex marriage, whether to update Australia's same-sex marriage law to allow same-sex couples to marry. And I think it was nine seats that voted against it. Um, And it was a a few very conservative regional Australian seats, you know, that that could be best compared to, you know, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene's district, uh, Georgia 14, you know, Um, Mm -hmm. or Doug Collins is, you know, nine, very Ruby, you know, Ruby Republican areas, or or that would be the comp. And then it was um, suburban areas in, in, in Sydney and Melbourne with heavy, uh, heavily Chinese populations. And, the, the, the reason that those areas um, voted against same-sex marriage was culturally conservative uh, Chinese voters and, and, and immigrants more broadly voted against a social – voted against a social liberal policy. And you saw it in the Canadian election in 2019. You're starting to see globally culturally conservative religious um, voters of color who have sort of in the past voted for – uh, the party, the, the left-wing party, um, because of, of fears about the, the main conservative party, they're starting to vote like cultural conservatives. Again, as politics have sort of been uh, redefined on the axis of social liberalism versus cultural conservatism, um, they're now voting more like cultural conservatives do. And you're starting to see with Hispanics, and you could maybe say with blacks, although not really, or African-Americans, I should say, um, you are starting to see culturally conservative Hispanics, but more like Hispanic or more like cultural conservatives than Hispanics. And the thing about the, the Rio Grande, they're very rural areas, right? They're mm-hmm. some of the most rural right. areas in Texas. And so, uh-huh. you know, high, high levels of, of um, high levels of Catholic belief, high levels of, of, of belief in God, of, uh, really regardless of, of the domination. And those voters, the the thing that was keeping them from voting for the GOP was that was the fact that they were Hispanic, but now they're starting to vote more like a cult, more like their culturally their white culturally conservative brethren. Mm-hmm. Now, are 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 we 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 keep reaching for Texas to be 
a toss-up state, to be a battleground state. But because of what's going on in the Rio Grande Valley, are we still a ways away from that status for Texas? I'm going to get in so much trouble for saying this because I believe Texas is going to get a lot of time, and, and I'm obviously wary of that now. Um, no, because there's not enough people in the Rio Grande. Um, like there, like mm-hmm. the the thing that Democrats need to do is they need to do better in Houston, Austin, and the Dallas Fort Worth quad of counties, and they're going to because. You know, um, one of my one of my close friends. Uh, I, I've given this anecdote uh, in, in columns before, but one of my friends grew up in um, South Lake, Texas, which is a it's a city right between Dallas and Fort Worth. And this is a place as he described it to me, where people were literally having dinner with the Bush family while mm-hmm. uh, George W. Bush was in the White House. This is ruby red territory. Romney won it by nearly sixty. Uh, Trump won it by thirty five, twenty five. Like those areas are moving because those socially liberal, very wealthy people. It sounds like it's one of the richest zip codes in the country. Um, they they can't vote for the GOP anymore. They can't look at, you know, they they can't look at the the, the threats to sort of social the the social liberal order, right? They the the GOP appointed Amy Coney Barrett uh, to the Supreme Court. They can't look at that party and say, yeah, that's the thing I can support anymore. And so, Texas is going to flip. The question with Texas has always been when, not if. I don't know if it's going to be 2024. Mm-hmm. I think 2028 would be my provisional guess as of right now. But Texas is going to flip because there are too many, there are too many socially liberal people who are voting for Republicans in Texas who will not vote for Republicans in, in two years, in four years, in six years, in eight years. We know this is happening. Well, we know this is happening because of what's happening everywhere else in the country and everywhere else internationally. And even if Democrats do worse with Hispanics in the Rio Grande and in Houston and San Antonio, eventually the weight of the number of people in those cities, also because everyone's moving into Austin and Dallas and Houston, it's going to be enough to move it for Democrats because the well-off social liberals in the big cities. Well, you are talking about a treasure trove of electoral votes. Uh, if the Republican Party should lose Texas, where, where do they even start to go to try to make up for the loss of that state? I've written that there's really not a great path for them they lose, when they lose Texas. Uh, I read about it a couple months ago. Um, mm-hmm. You need to win Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania – like Virginia, I think you would need like it's really I don't have I don't have all the math in front of me right now, but like you have to win like you gotta you gotta start putting like Illinois vaguely in play. You gotta win Maine and <laughs> North Carolina, like you or sorry, not uh, New Hampshire. Like you're in deep like the GFP are in deep trouble if Texas goes, because the thing is you're not winning Texas and losing Georgia. And that's the thing mm-hmm. people don't understand is you can get a map that like theoretically on paper works. But the thing is, if you win Texas, you're not losing Georgia, because everything right. I just said about, uh, you know, the voters in Dallas and Fort Worth, that's mm-hmm. why Democrats now win Cobb and Gwinnett and why they're why they are losing Forsyth by 60 anymore, mm-hmm. but they're losing it by mid 30s. Mm-hmm. So I got one more question this time. I want to jump way up to the state of Alaska. And uh, Lisa Murkowski has had quite an interesting run. 
The latest polling does not look good for her at all. Is she finally finished in Alaska? God, you're asking me a lot of questions. I can look uh, the, the the that might end up making me look bad by the end of this. Um, by the end of by, by the end of 2022. But uh, no, no, uh, I think she is because the thing about Lisa Murkowski is her voting record is too conservative for Democrats and too mm-hmm. liberal for Republicans. Right? She voted mm-hmm. for Amy Coney Barrett and voted for the Trump tax cuts which are two huge problems for Democrats. Um, and she voted against Brooke Kavanaugh and voted against mm-hmm. repealing Obamacare, which are two mm-hmm. huge problems for Republicans, right? Mm-hmm. Trump, has, right. Trump has signaled that, she's, that he is going to oppose her vigorously. Uh, I assume if he has not endorsed this current, the, the, the current leader in the polls, uh, I expect that she will get that endorsement soon. Uh, once it's clear that she is the the, the choice of anti-Murkowski Republicans. And Democrats, like Alaska's not a state Democrats are going to win this time, right? But they mm-hmm. only lost it by 10, right. uh-huh. 10 points, and Alaska's like, I think, 40,000 votes. It's really not that much. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a state that's turning blue. Democrats are doing better in Anchorage. And Democrats are going to try there. And the thing is, yeah, Murkowski won twice in 2010 and 2016, but that's because Democrats ran nobodies. They ran... Like they ran paper candidates, and if the Democratic Party tries it just to build up for 2024 or 2026, that sense is going to be real juicy in 2026. You can really get to a position where Murkowski is just going to come in third in the in the jungle primary. She's going to be stuck behind a Democrat and a Republican, and then her the the second preferences of her voters are going to elect the winner. But Murkowski is a candidate in trying to be a candidate for everybody. She's a candidate for nobody. Wow. It's an excellent analysis there. I don't think you'll get in trouble for that one at all. And with that, I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? Hey, Evan. Thanks for being on with us tonight. We appreciate it. I'm going to go back to New York City uh, in a more general uh, question about ranked choice voting. Um, This is sort of the biggest, um, the most visible election in the country that's going to be using ranked choice voting. Um, And I'm just wondering what you think about, I mean, because it's been, it's used around the world, right? Sorry, sorry. I just dropped, sorry. I just, um, I just dropped a call for 20 seconds. Can you just please repeat your question? Oh, sure. I'm sorry. Um, I wanted to ask you about ranked choice voting. Pardon? Oh yes, please. Yes. Um, so around the world, there it's used pretty widely. Am I correct in that? Yeah, it's used. Uh, it's used in a few places. Uh, Australia is the, the sort of main main um, democracy that has comparables to the U.S. that that that's used in. Yes. Um, the, this New York City mayor mayoral race might uh, help promote the use of it. We really need it here in Georgia because we have this ridiculous uh, runoff system that's extremely expensive and really uh, doesn't work very well because people don't come back out to vote. So how do you think that this this mayoral race, which should be pretty visible, will, do you think it will have an impact on the sort of perception of ranked choice voting? 
I think the thing that will get right choice of voting popularized is there there needs to be a sort of greater comfort with it because voters right now look at it and go, this is complicated. I'm not really sure how it works. And it's sort of, I'm not a big fan of, of I'm not a big fan of something I don't understand. If it happens in New York City, it's going to happen in Alaska next year for the first time. And if Stacey Abrams wins the governorship in Georgia, you could definitely see sort of a greater push for why are we going to run these expensive runoffs? And I think the GOP in Georgia specifically might bite on that because they just lost two Senate seats that they probably wouldn't have lost under ranked choice. Well, one of them at least, that they wouldn't have lost under ranked choice voting. Like John Ossoff, John Ossoff is a senator today because there was the runoff and because those Trump, those Trump supporters didn't come back out and vote on uh, January 5th. And yeah, so I do right. think you could see that if these elections go well and if voters, if voters understand the voting system a little better and the thing about understanding voting systems is they can be kind of hard to explain in the abstract, but when you have one or two or three examples of like, this is the actual system that would be used as opposed to esoteric explanations from uh, academics, it's a lot easier to sell to the population. Right. I, I, and, and in addition to that, do you think that um, ranked choice voting also uh, provides a little bit less uh, rancor between candidates because they're, they sort of need to count on second choices? I don't think it will make the – I think what it will do is it will allow for – uh, I don't know that it will, it will lead to less rancor because if you're a Democrat, like you're still going to hit your Republican opponent as hard because like you're never going to get their preferences. What it will do is allow uh, you'll actually get coherent third party candidacies for the first time because you won't be able to run the like, oh, if you vote for the Green Party, you're going to elect Donald Trump, or if you vote for the Libertarians, you're going to get you're going to elect the evil socialist, you know, John Ossoff. Um, which, you know, pretty, I, not quite verbatim, but that was basically Purdue's argument for the last two weeks of the campaign. Yeah. And, you know, uh, you're not going to get that anymore if the voting system means that you need those voters to then put you second. Um, the other thing is, I don't know that anyone in America actually, like, like I don't know if any of the campaigns have thought through the, like, I don't think anyone really knows how to run in our, uh, a ranked choice voting campaign. And I think that it would lead to some potential upsets because people people don't necessarily know how to maneuver in a in a new system, which would be interesting for me and I think for for many uh, if we get you know wide wide wider wider spread um, use of RTV. Okay, well, thank you. I, I I'm I've always been a, a fan of it, and uh, actually my. Home, in my hometown in the 70s, we used it. Um, so I'm looking for, I, I'm hoping that we can someday, hopefully in my lifetime, uh, use it in, in a more wide fashion. So thank you for those comments. Back to you, David. Yes. Well, Evan, um, we've pretty much gone off of your substack, and we're going to give you a chance to promote that here in a minute. But today, you um, well, there's a poll that came out about the Virginia governor's race. It's the first non-internal 
um, poll of the you know the general election matchup, and you made the most interesting comment looking at the crosstabs. In fact, I think you know I, you made an interesting comment about um, uh, the African American support and how to look at that. Um, you can give us a view of the Virginia race, but also talk about what you found there. So that poll has Terry McAuliffe, who is the former governor, is running again, uh, up four over his Republican opponent. That said, that poll has Terry McAuliffe getting 61% of the African-American vote. If you think Terry McAuliffe is going to get 61% of the African-American vote, I have oceanfront property in Fulton County for you. It (laughs) is not going to happen. I'm really sorry it's not. We had this happen in Georgia twice. We had it in the general election. Then we had it in our own office. Polls which assume that Democrats are going to suddenly do 30, 40, 50 points worse with African-Americans than they ever have before are never correct. Like, I'm really sorry it's not. And if you assume, so Joe Biden won African-Americans by 81 points in the state of Virginia last time, according to the Fox exits. This poll has Terry McCall winning them by 41 points. If you assume, if you plug in that 80% margin for, for Terry McAuliffe, you end up getting that poll, which is Democrats winning by four to Democrats winning by 11. Now, the counterpoint to that is, yeah, but you can't do that because, like, what if the white numbers are not as good? Like, what if those numbers are also wrong? And then what if it's a D4 by act? Like, what if they got the right overall result by, by sort of two errors canceling each other out? Maybe. Maybe that's a very valid point. But any poll which says that Terry McCall is going to get 61% of the African-American vote in Virginia is not credible and should not be taken seriously. The broader question is who's going to win? Terry McCall is going to win the Virginia governor's race. It's a blue state. He's a popular former incumbent. There's no argument to say that he's not going to win. The guy who's the GOP are running is a you know, businessman. People try to make him as a moderate. He's endorsed by Ted Cruz. Like, not exactly the not exactly your your moderate, you know, your moderate uh, choice from them. And it's a state that voted for Joe Biden by ten points. Joe Biden is still broadly popular. I think his approval is fifty two, fifty three, fifty four percent right now. Like we're not looking at a deeply unpopular president and we're looking at a, a sort of like era of politics where you don't see the massive upsets that you used to anymore. You don't see, you know, very often you don't see the sorts of like, oh, a state will vote for uh, George Bush by 20 and then reelected a Democratic president, right? You don't see those to the same, or reelected governor, I should say. You don't see that anymore, not nearly as often. Biden's popular in Virginia. McAuliffe is popular in Virginia. It's a blue state. Karen McAuliffe's going to win. Yes, and I thought it was very instructive of how polling is it should be used nowadays. You really have to go in the cross tabs, and pollsters really have to show you. It's kind of like, and I'm sure other sports do it too, but the NBA on their website, they show the score of the game, and that tells you something. But then if you click on and you look at the stats and you see the plus minus for every player and you look for everybody's shooting percentage and everybody's free throw percentage and what they shot from three points and who rebounded, you really get a fuller picture of what happened. 
and, and you might really can assess the game. Same thing with polling. If you look at the top lines, you get one thing. If you break down the cross tabs, you get a much you know richer picture. Yeah, to, to, to extend the basketball analogy, it's the better team loses the game, but the reason they lost is because the other team made 60% of their threes. Yes, in that game they lost, but that's not going to happen continuously. That's not going to happen four times in a seven-game series. And we can just take the outcome of that poll and we can just take it at face value, or we can look at the fact that like this poll does just not pass a like, very basic smell test. Yes. Just well, doesn't. Evan, the reason I, I kind of wanted to bring in a little sports is because I want to give you a chance now. Um, of course, you're on Twitter. You can give us that handle in a second. But since we had you on, you're now on Substack. Give everybody the way they can access that content as well. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for, for giving me the opportunity. Um, unscripted, uh, at Unscripted Scrim, uh, Unscripted S-C-R-I-M uh, is the Twitter account. I tweet out all my articles uh, from there. Um, Scriptural Unscripted.substack.com. Uh, I write, I, I like to say I write most days. I haven't really been doing so every day recently. Mostly politics, the occasional sports. Uh, we've got uh, European soccer championships on right now, so I've written about that. In recent days, I'm going to be writing about that Virginia poll for the morning. Uh, follow me on Twitter at eScrimshaw if you want my if you want some political thoughts that might not be worth a full column. Uh, you get to see whatever I've written something because I was tweeted uh, at from at eScrimshaw, and then uh, you'll also get me um, nervously tweeting about the, the English men's soccer team. So yeah, that's always fun. Yes. Well, I appreciate you so much coming on. Um, we can't wait to your fourth time coming on the Kudzu Vine. Would, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll anxiously await that, uh, that invitation and accept it immediately. Excellent. Thank you, sir. Thank you Thank so much. Thank you. Yes, uh, that was Evan Scrimshaw. Uh, just excellent content. And it's just the amazing thing that I have to point out. Again, he lives in Canada. He doesn't live in one of the 50 states, yet he knows the breakdown of the politics better than probably 90% of the people living in each of the 50 states. Um, it, it's really amazing, um, you know, how, how what his range is. And also he, he does cover sports, so... Uh, if you're interested in the sports that he covers, um, he can give you some analysis there as well. Well, um, that pretty much takes up our hour, but it's been a great one. I want to say next week we're excited to have on the Kudzu Vine from George Washington University, Dr. Todd Belt. Before coming to George Washington, he lived in Hawaii, so he's going to talk a little Hawaii politics with us. He also likes to talk about humor and politics, and certainly in 2020 and 2018, our politics seemed so serious, so it was no laughing matter. So we're going to try to uh, see you know, how he maybe can bring the humor back or find something funny in, in uh, such high stakes. So we'll welcome Dr. Belt on next week. But until then... Been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, guys. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force?